Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Our safety net, um, it was constructed to be difficult to use. And lo and behold, when you hit a real crisis in which people need to use um, benefits um, or safety net programs, that, that, that then it, you know, the systems can't contain these people. Um, and just in general, I think that, that the government uh, is dysfunctional for a lot of reasons. But one of the ways in which the government is dysfunctional is that um, it doesn't have a very good customer service orientation. Uh, things like doing your taxes are really confusing. So miserable. Why? Yeah, so, why? Yeah, why? Right? Um, because I think it's in, in a lot of ways intentional, right? We don't want the government to work very well, um, or at least a lot of people. I want it. I want it to work well, Annie. <laughs> <I don't know> <laughs> <about> you. <laughs> you do. You know, one of the things that comes out of that is that in many ways, interacting with our government reduces our interest in and confidence in government, as you put it. And, and there's even some evidence that it sort of dissuades people from voting and disconnects them from the political wow. process. No way. <laughs> They're like, I want nothing to do with this. That's exactly. Awful. And I think that there is this really interesting kind of like thought loop that you get in in which like public services are terrible and it erodes your confidence in government and then it becomes self-justifying, right? Like why would we want to put any more administration into this if the government can't get anything right? Like making government work for people is, is not necessarily a focus of our political system, but it really should be. So the cops who shot Breonna Taylor were one was mildly punished. Is that a fair way to give that headline? One was mildly punished and the rest are free. Is is that an objectively correct statement? Yes. I believe the charge brought was wanton endangerment, uh, which is a fourth degree felony. Um, and uh, I saw someone raise other fourth degree felonies to give you a basis of comparison. And another fourth degree felony is uh, using someone else's credit card for between $500 and $1,000. The penalty for wanted endangerment is um, up to five years in jail, can be no jail time. So it's a very mild charge. So I want to make sure we level set what happened to Brianna generally, and then what happened in the aftermath. So Brianna was sleeping, um, and because of a no-knock warrant rule, cops busted in, someone in her house fired, and then she was killed in crossfire. Did I get that right? 
Yeah, that, that is right. And one of the key facts that seems to have come up is whether or not the cops announced themselves. Um, and there's some dispute over this. Uh, the vast majority seem to agree that they did not. And then there was one neighbor that suggested that they did. Uh, but the general facts that everyone agrees on, uh, the fact that Brianna was sleeping in a bed uh, and then was shot in the crossfire between um, the police and her boyfriend. Uh, and the the fact that the charges have nothing to do with Brianna Taylor herself is infuriating to many. Um, but the rules, unfortunately, were really uh, not designed to protect people in their homes in this sort of situation um, because of the no-knock warrant, which in my view is a bad rule. And Louisville changed it. Uh, other jurisdictions should do the same because you also simultaneously have something called stand your ground laws, which is that if someone barges in unannounced into your home in particular, you can use whatever force uh, is available to you. And, and so if you have police barging in unannounced and stand your ground laws, you essentially are saying everyone can uh, have at it and no one can, no one is doing anything wrong uh, in, in a country where, um, firearms are so ubiquitous that 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 does not seem like uh, like a sensible approach. Uh, and so no knock warrants in my mind are uh, the problem. And no knock warrants were not the law of the land for a long time. There's uh, and the rationale behind them is that it will keep criminals from being able to destroy evidence uh, and provide uh, police officers like a higher margin of safety if they can barge in unannounced if they, they have reason to believe that the person within um, will uh, respond violently. So a no-knock warrant, just for any listening, because I didn't know what this was, it's, it's a regular search warrant, but you do not need to, the cops do not legally need to announce themselves, right? And your, yeah, that, and your that's point right. is that, and that it, your point is that if a cop just burst down your door, you as a private citizen are in your own legal right to start shooting them. And then once the cops are shot at, they are in their legal right to shoot you back. So you now have, and your point is that you've essentially just legalized gunfighting um, to where at the end of the gunfight, no one's held accountable because everybody's within their rights and within the law. Is that, is that a correct summary? Yeah, that, that that's correct. Uh, and in, to it, I think to the objective observer, that's not the situation you want. Uh, and and so you should, to me, uh, curb no-knock warrants, have police announce themselves. And then if you are in, uh, in a dwelling, uh, you're going to know it's a police officer. And then, you know, you're, you're not going to uh, fire on them unless, unless, frankly, you have a, a death wish, because if you fire on them, you're, you're probably going to be killed. So uh, the so that that gets rid of um, this perverse situation uh, that resulted in part in um, these charges that we're seeing right now. Uh, and it was one officer who apparently fired many extra shots uh, into neighboring apartments uh, that they said, look, th th this is um, criminal. We can charge you with it. But the charge in the scheme of things uh, is infuriating to so many because it has nothing to do with Breonna Taylor who lost her life. So you talk about a major solution would be getting rid of this law, but I do see 
very rational reasons where this law would be great. Where if you're trying to track down a serial killer or someone who's inflicted tons of harm and they're tough to catch, you need the element of surprise. You don't want them to destroy computers. By announcing yourself, they can escape. They can do X, Y, Z. How do you... If you're going to legislate that, how do you draw that line, right? Do you, you just make it tougher to get a no-knock warrant? Do you ban them all together? Like, what, what do you, how do you structure that? I'm not convinced that the the utility of that, that window of time is so massive in, in either direction. Because if you have to announce yourself uh, and then enter, like, it doesn't mean you're waiting for, like, 15 minutes while they, uh, you know, while, while they, uh, destroy things or, or do whatnot like it, it can simply be like this is the police and, and then you do what you're going to do anyway and like what used to announce yourself clearly and then smash the door down uh you know to me that's like that that's not like the, this massive opportunity to um to destroy evidence or, or do whatever but like that would be a small price to pay in my mind for all of the um the public safety benefits uh, and for the fact that you know that if it's the police, like they should let you know, which has been the law of the land for a long time. Like a no-knock warrant's a relatively recent addition. Uh, it used to be essentially common law inherited from England that if the police come to your house, they have to let you know. Is it is the no-knock warrant law, is it state by state or is that federal? State by state. It's state by state, and the stand your ground laws are essentially the norm in the United States. Uh, like something like thirty-five states uh, out of fifty uh, have it. Essentially, it's just like everyone knows it's right. like a stand your ground law uh, zone. I think it. I think idiots like me are thinking like when they picture this in their head, they're thinking like uh, like you see in like a cop movie where they're like surrounding like an old barn where like this like hideout where a villain is and, or like a criminal is, and they've got all this evidence in there. And in that point. In that movie scenario, you want the element of surprise, right? But I well, think again, in reality, again, it's... again, you can surround the heck out of that barn, be style. Like, you can do it all. You just someone has to yell yeah. police before you smash it down. You know, like I mean that, right. like that's, It's not. It doesn't prevent that, yeah. you from doing all the things that you'd want to do. The the other thing is like the my gut says it, if most of this crime and these types of individuals are living in bigger cities, you're talking about apartments. You're talking about nowhere to escape um, type scenarios um, where it is like a simple knock and then there's no time to you know do much. Um, it's just so just someone yell is, police. There's a police open up and then yes. if, if there's no response, then you go, go at it. But at least you then there's it. no ambiguity that the person legitimately just have their door smashed in. And then like, uh, you know, what are you going to do if you're asleep with your girlfriend? It's midnight. Someone smashes the door down like, you know, and, and you have a firearm. I mean, like there you know, are many, is, many yeah. Americans... Like I saw online a social media post where like it was uh, someone said, "Look, uh, I'm white. I'm a gun owner, and if someone smashed down my door, like I'm gonna fire on them immediately." Like that. That was like the the post, which, uh, which which to me reflected the reality of the situation. So what's heartbreaking right now is that there are so many, literally millions of Americans that want justice for her, justice for Brianna, and right now they're not getting it. And it doesn't look like they're going to get it in that in this. When we say justice, it means someone needs to go to jail for murdering her. Right. Someone needs to pay the price. Um, and the reason I want to I want to understand, it seems like to me the reason there's no justice for her. And no one's been arrested for murder, murdering her is because 
no one technically broke the law. Is that correct? The rules as written would make it very difficult to prosecute uh, these officers for murdering Breonna Taylor. That's correct. And that is what's heartbreaking. And so the real justice for her is to, we have to change the laws, right? Like that's... Yes. Uh, well, not, nothing can bring Brianna back to her family. Yes. I mean, there, there's already been a successful civil suit. Uh, and the, the the city pre-announced, essentially, the, uh, the fact that they settled with the family. Um, uh, this is actually a norm in many jurisdictions where if the police do something uh, irreparable, uh, you know, they maim someone or injure someone, then someone gets a settlement, uh, but there's no liability attached to the officers that that's actually a not uncommon um resolution which i I would suggest is not what you want like you don't want a country where police officers uh, make make mistakes at a certain level and then the victims or the victims families get a certain amount of money like like that that not that is not where our resources should be going i mean we're spending over a billion dollars a year right now on uh, payments to uh, victims and families, uh, you know, it's like, I mean, that that's ridiculous. Like, you know, in, in some jurisdictions, you're paying hundreds of millions of dollars uh, a year to victims and, and their families. Uh, so rules changes would be a better way to go. Uh, the, the, the problem right now is that the political will to enact these rules changes is not there. Uh, and to the extent it existed, um, when when emotions were higher earlier, uh, a lot of these state legislatures and city legislatures weren't in session or had adjourned because of COVID. Um, so it, right now it's an open question whether there will be meaningful policy changes. Uh, no, nothing from Congress. I mean, that there was like a George Floyd Act on the table that um, got stalled in the, in the Senate. So so that's one of the things that, that to me is actually like a, a larger issue that is going to break us uh, is that our government's not actually responding to uh, to just about any expression of um, will or desire for action on the part of the American people, is that when it comes to brass tacks, um, they get in there and then they say, wait a minute, like I, I, uh, I'm going to make real problems and real political enemies if I go down this road or... Um, there are, or there are legislators in uh, Congress who know they're going to get reelected uh, no matter what because the incumbent reelection rate is ninety four percent, and maybe their point of view does not, um, you know, like uh, the majority of Americans um, certainly earlier this summer were for some form of police reform. Um, but just the, the nature of legislative incentives, and we're seeing it with a stimulus bill too, where something like 90% of Americans want a stimulus bill, uh, and politicians are deciding it's better for their political futures if they blame the other side and don't pass a bill. Um, so, so this, this lack of, uh, ability to respond and change policies and adapt on the part of legislatures in cities and states uh, and in Congress, it is going to be an increasingly intractable problem. Um, and it, it's one reason why now I'm, I'm turning my sights towards some form of uh, government reform, honestly, where you look up and say, why right. is it that 
if 80, 90% of people think this is the way to go, uh, we don't do that, whether it's um, stimulus relief or stimulus, uh, stimulus bill for pandemic relief, whether it's, I would throw addressing climate change in there, like the majority of Americans are for that. Uh, and so, you know, there, there, there are a bunch of things where uh, the, the majority of us are for and then our government doesn't do anything and we're getting increasingly despondent. And now police reform makes that list because the majority of Americans want some form of police reform um, and we're not really seeing it. Here's a fact for you is that it takes longer to be trained to become a hairdresser than it does to become a cop in the United States of America. And that is nothing against hairdressers. My cousin's a hairdresser. Um, like, it's an awesome career. I mean, I think they're, they're struggling now a bit, but they're getting back in COVID. But it's a 13 to 19 week training process for our cops. Um, and I think the situations they are in are so stressful and life-threatening that to me, I mean, hell, man, I trained for two months to become a lifeguard. That's just just shy of that. Like, it, like no. to me, it feels like an under-resourced well, investment. Well, there's the time frame spent, but then there's the nature of the training. Uh, so first, the training is different everywhere because, you know, you have tens of thousands of police departments. That's true. And it's outsourced, too, a lot, right? Like, governments will... They'll, they'll certainly consolidate. because it, it, companies to do it sometimes, too. Yeah, and it, I mean, if you're a small community, you don't have your own police academy. So, you know, it's like some, someone's yeah, being yeah. trained elsewhere. Uh, but... One number I saw was that um, the average law enforcement officer spends 58 hours training in the use of their firearm in deadly force uh, and eight hours in de-escalated conflict. And so if you're in like an ambiguous situation, you're prone to speed it up uh, and use force rather than slow it down and try and de-escalate. So so that's a feature of our training that um, uh, I think yeah. leads in a particular direction. That's the message they're getting, right? Yeah, the the it's all about if they're learning all about the gun, right? Well, yeah, yeah the message is to uh, you know to, to um, speed it up and and uh, you know use force in in many circumstances, uh, and it's uh, and so the you know there, there's like there, there are different things we could do, um, but it, it's tough in part because this is like a very diffuse problem. Um, and to me, ideally, you'd have national use of force rules when, when it comes to law enforcement, because asking each um, city and state to tackle it uh, might not work uh, until after the fact. And even after the fact, it might not work. Uh, you know, so uh, I think um, things like uh, like banning chokeholds and things that were uh, included in the George Floyd Act, having better data on what the heck is going on. Because uh, right now that that data is unclear, it, it gets compiled from various journalistic accounts. Um, yeah, that so the the real problem in my mind now is like why can't our government or governments uh, get these things done? Um, and, and it's in large part because um, we've created these systems that uh, that are almost designed uh, not to get things done. And that the political incentives are not to take any kind of serious action uh, and just play it out, just play out politics. And like once you're in, you're going to stay in uh, almost regardless of how the body performs. Um, And Congress is the most glaring example of this, where they have an approval rating of 21 percent and individual members have reelection rates of 94 percent. So 
they they know that they're going to get reelected regardless of whether or not people approve right. of Congress's work more broadly. So for those of you interested more in our deeper conversation on police reform, we do have an episode. It was called, But What Can We Do? Six Ideas for Police Reform. And that came out on June 8th of this year. Um, and it's even more relevant now. Jeez. Um, so uh, you, you mentioned, I mean, democracy reform is going to be our jam um, going forward. And it's, you, you got to fix the system. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash yang to learn more. Even though our system's so busted and messed up, like I love when you can help us make sense of what's happening. So last we talked, we were talking about, um, we were hoping for a couple Republican senators to not be hypocrites, if you will, for what they did to um, Merrick Garland uh, in 2016 in terms of waiting until after the election to nominate um, a Supreme Court justice. Mitt Romney was one of the ones we thought um, had a spine and was definitely center right. And he tweeted out this, which I will read in the other thoughts. He says, Mitt Romney, from Senator from Utah, former presidential candidate, says, my liberal friend's have over many decades gotten very used to the idea of having a liberal court. And that's not written in the stars. It's also appropriate for a nation, which is, if you will, center-right, to have a court which reflects a center-right point of view. What? So two thoughts, two questions for you. One, thoughts on Romney in general falling in line um, with the Republicans. And two, Thoughts on the country being center-right? Uh, is that another Mitt Romney tone-deaf moment, uh, which he was kind of notorious for in, when he ran for president? What do you, what do you think? Um, he's not the first person to say that our, our country is center-right. Um, and uh, it's been true, certainly, at, at various points. Um, whether it's that way now, you know, as, as the numbers guy, 
I would say that uh, self-identified independents outnumber other Republicans or, or Democrats. So it would be a matter of judgment as to uh, whether the country is center right, center left, leaning, uh, you know, one way or another. Yeah, it's center left or center right or center right. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I would say that that's um, that would be fair. Uh, I was disappointed but not surprised by the fact that Mitt came out um, for a Supreme Court appointment because of the nature of his constituency, really. I mean, he's a senator from Utah. Uh, you know that most of his uh, voters would be very favorable towards a conservative Supreme Court appointment. So it, it would seem like he would be going against the will of his constituents um, on a matter of principle. And that, that seemed like a lot uh, you know, like it, it made more sense to me that folks whose political fortunes um, would be uh, helped, frankly, by going against the Supreme Court appointment um, but might make that call. So Susan Collins is one example where uh, she's in a very tight race in Maine and um, she's being castigated for just being like a rubber stamp for Trump. So for her coming out and saying like, hey, I'm not with Trump on this one, like is probably helpful to her politically. Uh, the other person that I, I had hope for was Cory Gardner in um, Colorado, who's running against our friend John Hickenlooper. I thought there was a chance that, uh, so similar dynamic, uh, Gardner's getting thrown under the bus for being a Trump rubber stamp. So I thought there was a chance he'd be like, not with Trump on this one. But then he came out and said, I am. And then, and the, the interesting thing is like, it, it struck me as like a, um, an unhelpful move for him politically. Like, I, I think that Gardner... Um, is very likely to lose to Hickenlooper and that this announcement is going to not help him in that direction. Um, so big picture, you did not get the four Republican senators that you need to go against this nomination. If Trump decides to nominate and speed it up, then it's going to happen. Um, there are very, very limited moves that Democrats into the Senate can make to try and hold this up. They, they can do things that are... Uh, a break from tradition in terms of meeting with the nominee, um, but the votes are the votes. And so if you, you wind up with 51 people voting to confirm um, in, let's call it October, November, December, then uh, then we're likely to see uh, a new Supreme Court justice by year end. Yeah. So on one hand, I, I, Mitt seems to be relatively principled guy. I know people disagree with that or have their opinions on that, but... Um, if you're a Republican and, and you don't like Trump, and Mitt is on record not liking Trump at all, but he's Republican and he wants a Republican justice or conservative justice on the Supreme Court. Um, so I don't agree with Mitt on everything. Um, and we, and I, don't, I know you certainly don't. But to me, I can't I, I don't blame him for that. I was hoping um, on principle of what happened in 2016 that they would um, wait for the election. But this is why the, a lot of them. It's why they're why they're there. You know, this is what they they want the law of the land. Well, to me, this um, has to spur a drive towards modernizing the court. And uh, this is one of the things I've been talking about. Is like, look, lifetime appointments do not make sense. Uh, the Constitution says nothing about the number of justices. A majority vote in the Senate could change the number from nine to uh, seventeen or twenty-seven or whatever the number would be. Uh, and there was a plan that I quite liked, which is just appoint a new one every two years. Uh, and let the number rise all the way up to something like 27. Um, and one advantage to this is that you could actually hear more cases because right now the Supreme Court is this massive bottleneck where uh, they don't hear a whole lot. 
uh, one of the reasons why the Supreme Court is such a like a it seems like such an important um, institution to us is that Congress is so dysfunctional in theory or even in the not so distant past, if Congress did not like a Supreme Court ruling on something, it just passed a law. Like so the Supreme Court's job is to is to interpret the law. And so if Congress thinks that Supreme Court messed up in an interpretation, they're like, hey, just to clarify, this is what we meant. And they just pass a law <laughs> saying this. It's just because Congress can't get anything done that now we're looking up and saying like, oh, is it, Supreme oh the Supreme rules Court all. rules all. It's like, actually, Congress could just freaking write a law if they... Like, uh, you know, if, if they remembered how to legislate. So so the Supreme Court, um, in, in my mind, needs to be modernized. Having lifetime appointments is just an awful, awful anachronism um, right now in, in 2020. 18-year yep. terms, plenty long. Uh, just let the number rise uh, and make it so that we're, we're not literally having these... Uh, these self-inflicted crises because an 87 year old fighting cancer had to like hang on until her dying days. And then she like passes uh, weeks before an election. And, and here we are. I mean, like that, that's not a great situation for anybody. Uh, and, and modernization should be bipartisan because it's like, look, you win an election, you get a couple justices like, uh, but it, it should not be that yes. you, uh, you nominate someone and you're like, ooh, I'm going to nominate this young person who's like only 49. They'll be there for 30 years. Like, does that make any sense too? It's like that you're planning a flag and being like, this shall be the law of the land not to evolve for decades. It's like you're supposed to actually be uh, trying to have some measure of um, uh, of uh, predictability, transparency, you know that that this this commentator who I appreciated who who suggested this plan was like um, was that this perception built up over time that the Supreme Court was somehow going to be apolitical, um, but actually, like at this point, we're um, we're clearly in a, at a point where where it's becoming um, more and more of a politicized institution, uh, and so let's just like accept the fact that elections have consequences where the Supreme Court's concerned and that you're, you're not relying upon um, uh, upon nine unelected uh, lawyers to make the country's decisions for us. Uh, you know, it's like like that. That's uh, that's not the way the framers envisioned it. It's not the it's not what the people want. Uh, again, a lot of this would would be better if Congress could pass laws and then you know you'd have like a responsive body um but i'm all for modernizing the court uh which is i i'm going to suggest like you know it should be bipartisan because no one should be happy like right now conservatives are happy because they're they're getting these appointments but you know like you could have dems in charge like in this case like a matter of weeks and so for you having appointments that don't last forever like also not a bad thing to me, one, a presidential term seems like the most logical and fair and simple way to freaking do it. Because what happens, what seems like bullshit to me is that Obama gets one and or none or Trump gets three. Or Obama gets one over eight years and Trump gets two over four. Like that doesn't make sense. Like if you lose the election, one a term. If you stay in for two terms, you get two. And that way, um, 
we don't have to count on people living and yes. dying. Um, I, I'm going to suggest so, two a term because then like you can have them rotate off. If you only had one one every term, then then like the rotation uh, doesn't. If there's more on there, then yeah, it's less of a. Then that's the other thing. Like more of them. That's you talk about this a lot. More of them means that. Like, if you don't like Kavanaugh, that's fine, because there's 15 other people or 20 other people in his vote. The average more. American, uh, well, the average American probably couldn't name, like, a, you know, like, but, like, the average American has no idea who's on, like, the uh, Second Circuit Court of Appeals or whatnot. You know what I mean? Like, and and, and that is not necessarily a bad thing. Like, it, I'm going, I would, I would argue yeah. that, like, if you had, you know, like, 17, 19, 27 justices, uh, then... You wouldn't know who the, who they are, and that would be okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like like that. That's actually probably a better look uh, <laughs> because yeah. Uh, um, yeah, because that then it's it's less of like a uh, frankly like this. Um, uh, it, it'd be less of like a personality driven institution, um, uh, which right now, right. unfortunately, it kind of feels like. He, you said something really interesting that I think is really hopeful. Um, you said that a Senate majority can increase the number of Supreme Court justices, right? Or is it, it has to be all of Congress, or is it just Senate that? Can oh, vote? it's just a law. You know? So, yeah, no, it, it's just, it's yeah, just it's just a law. law. It, it was, I believe, so the, it, the 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 nine so, the nine justices rule was passed, I believe, in something like 1869, and it was just a law. Oh my gosh. So here, here it is, folks. Here's your hope. Because to me, I would like Roe v. Wade to stay law of the land, um, I th- or the, the precedent of the land, I guess, to your point earlier. Um, so RBG, and, and I know I'll, I've talked a lot of with, to my female friends who are um, and mothers and my mom um, who are a little um, concerned about this. If you are fearful, it sounds like the hope is to vote and we can freaking win, back, win this back and adjust our Supreme Court, pass a law that hasn't been updated for a hundred plus years um, and make the court more dynamic and more reflective of the American people and not reliant on literally 86 year old, seven year old women, men uh, staying longer for an extra year to avoid a, um, a political, you know, a president whose political party they don't belong to or agree with. Um, so vote. Cause if we take this back, we have a shot to fixing it. Is that. Uh- yes. The drive should be court modernization. It's time to modernize uh the supreme court and and that that to me is the hope but it it requires us to vote all right um so i'm going to um we're going to wrap our episode with a couple um just quick things one thank you for all who participated in our um in the Unagi giveaway, we're giving away um we'll announce that next week next monday's episode so if you haven't submitted a caption yet Please do. It's on our Instagram at Andrew Yang and at Zach Grauman. Um, we've got Andrew. The debates are next week. Am I uh, September that right? 29th, Tuesday. So it's going to be the day after this week, comes right? out. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, oh, this it's is tomorrow. it's tomorrow. Yeah. If you're listening to this, right? Um, so Tuesday, 29th, and Andrew Yang is in prime time. Going to be spitting hot fire and dropping bombs on whatever Republican they throw at him or whatever pundit that says something stupid. Andrew's going to crush them. So it's going to be very it's going to be very it's gonna be awesome because we're all just going to be watching the debate. But it, it's uh, oh come on, dude, drop a bomb for me, man. Just shit on him one time. Just just think, I want in the back of your head. Just want you thinking like 
I am a crush this guy real quick, just for the YouTube. But yeah, clip. I'll 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 be on I know I'll style. be on CNN before and after <laughs> the uh, the debate. Um, and and it yeah. looks like that's that's probably true um, for all the debates. I think. Yeah, it's it's exciting. Um, and then on the most important news, I know I buried the leagues at the end of the podcast, but for those of you listening, um, at the time of recording, Josh Allen leads the NFL in passing yards on the Buffalo Bills. So I know it's not really this audience, but just want to say it's a good, good year to be a Bills fan so far. All right. Um, guys, we love you. Take a listen to this interview with Annie Lowry. She was, Andrew, what? She was our first, the first UBI champion, right? Like maybe her and Robert Reich, like the- – Oh, she was she's one of the great modern day uh, champions of universal basic income. And certainly we all know universal basic income has been around for decades and decades. But Annie is one of the, the yeah, chief yeah, yeah. figures that has uh, rekindled interest in it. Uh, and she and I met at a universal basic income uh, panel uh, back in 2017. Uh, she's tremendous. She's a brilliant journalist. I love reading her stuff because she's approaching things from a, a similar vantage point around just human beings and uh, how to improve our way of life. And she figured out universal basic income before just about anyone wrote this great book, Give People Money, that came out the same time my book came out. So if you're looking for a universal basic income reading that goes uh, into international environments uh, and uh, goes go, goes about it a bit differently than mine. Uh, and she and I talk about this on the interview where yeah. she's like, you're like the technology guy. I'm more like the social program benefits, uh, um, uh, how to better like the way of life for, for people, um, journalist. Uh, but we're all attacking the same problems from different angles. Uh, I'm super grateful to Annie. I read her book and learned a lot. Uh, and I continue to learn from her. Yeah, she's amazing. And you guys, yeah, the, there's a, that's the perfect way to put it, Andrew. You you tag it from like an automation tech perspective, and she gets there from a human perspective, which you, and, and she understands the automation tech, same way you understand the human side. Um, but it's a fascinating way to look at something we've been passionate about for a while. Um, so tune in, guys. Annie Lowry joins Yang Speaks. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. 
It's my pleasure to have on Yang Speaks one of my favorite journalists uh, and thinkers in the world, Annie Lowry. Hey, Annie, how are you? Great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to do this. Yeah, it's so overdue because you're part of a very select club of folks who've been championing universal basic income <laughs> since, uh, let's say, before 2019 or the pandemic or something along those lines. Uh, and for folks who haven't read Annie's book, Give People Money, which hopefully that title says it all as to what it's about, uh, you should definitely pick it up because it's a great book about universal basic income worldwide. Uh, I read it and learned a ton from it uh, even before I launched my campaign. Yeah, thank you um, so much. Yes, we are. We are part of a, of a, a relatively small club here. And so um, uh, I really appreciate that and obviously loved your book as well. And I'm happy to chat about, you know, whatever it is that's going on now, this unbelievable cluster that we find ourselves in. <laughs> Yeah, these are terrible times. Um, you know, I talked to Ezra, as you know, earlier this week, and he said that it smells like fire sometimes um, where you all are uh, in California. Um, how, how are you in the family? Uh, I know you have a lot that you're balancing. Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, we are doing okay. Um, internally in the office, we describe it as COVID fine. Like I am personally all right. I still have my job. My husband is doing fine and we never got sick. Um, we had a, a fairly short lapse in childcare um, because our kiddo, he's a toddler. He's not in school yet. So we haven't had um, as much disruption as a lot of my colleagues. Um, and your kids are kind of school age, right? Yeah, seven, seven and five, so a little bit old, older than yours. I guess they guess they're post toddler. <laughs> yeah, post post toddler. Um, and so you know, personally, I've been doing okay. Um, but it's been it's been a really difficult thing to watch this year, right? A recession that um, is much deeper than the Great Recession, and I I worry in some ways will be intractable, and then this astonishing public health crisis and then you know these these other crises that i think are slower moving but no less urgent that we're not dealing with having to do with racial inequality with climate change with everything else and and a political system that i think is really struggling to meet the moment in a pretty profound way so it's it's um personally okay horrified literally every day at what's going on and yeah the state being on fire it's like oh man that 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 too i don't know how how are you holding up i'm sure now you you probably actually maybe have like a little bit more space for yourself than you did if we were talking a year ago but is is everything okay with you well certainly a year ago was uh, was not the right time for me though <laughs> 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 no, in your case maybe because you know maybe, maybe something uh good would have come out of it um, so you call it COVID fine in the office. Uh, uh, we call it 2020 good. It's like, how are you doing? 2020 good. Uh, <laughs> but 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 we also are, are 2020 good uh, and also horrified on a daily basis uh, as to what's going on. Someone called it the Omnic crisis, which I think is as good a name as any. Uh, and one reason I'm excited to talk to you is that you're someone who has their finger on the pulse uh, of what's going on in the economy more than really just about anyone there is. Uh, one thing I want to share with you very briefly, because you're the only person I can share this with, and I don't think I've ever even had this conversation with anyone. Um, so you and I 
uh, both had our books kind of reviewed simultaneously in the New York Times. It was yeah. like some kind of weird joint joint review by, by, by Robert Reich. Uh, and uh, I, I have to say, I thought it was just a really odd review <laughs> where, like, uh, where, you know, so, cause, so you're an author, you write your book, like, you're like, oh, wow, it's getting reviewed in the New York Times, very exciting. And then you read it and you're like, I still have no idea what he said about my book <laughs> and so so you're the, you're the you're the other um author on that review so i just wanted to to make sure i wasn't crazy for thinking that do you so i'm gonna admit something i've never read a single review of my book i've never looked at sales figures i like kind of answer reader emails and that's it. Cause I just, I decided, I was like, I'm not sure that I have the emotional capacity to see like post publication reviews. And so I had my husband read them and just let me know if there was something like really unfair or something that would be reputationally damaging. But other than that, like I didn't read the New Yorker essay. I didn't read the wall street journal review. Like I read none of it. So I'm, I'm like here in my blissful ignorance. So I like have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that the review existed but i was precisely i was like oh man like i i i'm not sure that i have the emotional fortitude to also because i think that i having written the book i was like i i have such a harsh critique of my own work always and i i was like i would probably just agree and be like oh yeah they 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 weren't actually cutting enough which is is like an internal impulse of mine but yeah i'm sure our books are really different and you and i think about ubi really differently and so i somehow feel like um like our books are like they they kind of make maybe like good cousins or something but ubi is a really vast topic and it lashes a lot of ideas to Together. And so I could very much see that, you know, it's, it's funny because I think of us as sort of like working on different parts of the same intellectual project. But yeah, it was, it was like just coincidence that they happened to come out pretty close to each other. So yeah, that's, that's interesting. <laughs> that's so fun that you had Ezra as your reader. <laughs> he was like your, he was like your force field. Uh, I, I I have to say I think that sounds very healthy. <laughs> <laughs> if you ever need me to read something for you online, my services are available for a reasonable price. <laughs> if you need you know, if you need Andy, a, a human horse, force field for your own work. <laughs> I I think that we have hit upon a massive idea here, which is that <laughs> so many of us need force fields. <laughs> yeah, can, totally. You can, you can name it after uh, your husband Ezra. We could call it the Ezra. <laughs> it's oh, like, yeah. have you have you put out something for public consumption, and uh, you <laughs> want to just make sure that there's nothing um, completely untrue and uh, malicious being written about you, but you don't have the editor. You know, I, I think that would be actually be hysterical. Like you, you could have like the synthesizer of all of the stuff that is said about some work of yours. This is a massive business idea or, or nonprofit idea. It's just a massive idea. Yeah. I think this is, this is a good multi-billion dollar idea we have here. We can like branch out into sock puppeting services where like, are you tired of tweeting as yourself? Like we'll come and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll tweet for you. We'll do all of this. It's, I, I think this is great. <laughs> yes. Well, I certainly envy you, um, your Ezra, based force field <laughs> not, not to say i mean the review was fine <laughs> i don't i don't mean that particular thing uh but ju just generally I, I think it's a very smart uh human way to metabolize that sort of thing particularly as someone who ran for president and was 
subject to all sorts of um, comments and critiques uh, and support and love, um, but it's certainly a lot. Uh, and I, I think for me, uh, I did not realize what that would be like. Uh, I suppose there's no one that, like there's no way you could. Um, I had kind of uh, uh, an unrealistically sanguine attitude about it. <laughs> I think when I started, I was like, like be, be, because to me the big uh, the big obstacle was just simply being ignored. Um, yeah. I thought that was going to be like the the main thing I had to overcome. And so the last thing on my mind was uh, like vitriol or nastiness online. Um, and, and there was an extended period when I ever I did get something negative, I'd be like, well, at least they're talking about me. <laughs> like, oh, it's good. Yeah, that's like the um, healthiest attitude I've, I've ever heard. It's a thing that I, there are a lot of amazing things I find about politicians. Um, like, but I, I think the ability to, um, uh, to have that level of attention and to be able to filter things out. And one thing that I think is interesting is how does it, how does it, how do you accept good critiques, like real critiques, um, and let those in while also filtering all of the nonsense. Like I get probably one one hundredth of you get of what you get just from being like a woman on the internet, let alone a person who is like on a debate stage and is running for office. And it's just, it's a really difficult, a really, really difficult thing. And I've responded by in a lot of ways, especially as I've gotten older and have felt more secure in, in my career, just shutting things off. Right. So like, I don't, I don't have Facebook, um, uh, I tweet things out, but I can't see anything on Twitter. Um, it's actually, this is <laughs> it's like a one-way street to, for you. <laughs> it's totally one way. I just use it as a, as a megaphone. And so the way it's set up is that Ezra has the password and the two-factor. So he just tweets for me. And like, but you can't, wow. you can't do that as a politician <laughs> where you're like answerable to people and you need to be communicating with them. And, and I think when you want to be convincing them, right? Like as a politician, you don't want to be in the position of writing people off. It's really fascinating. And I, I kind of think that the brain is just not, it's just not organized for it. It's a really tough and I, I really admire the emotional and intellectual fortitude it takes to do something like that. It's true as a politician, you cannot be inaccessible that way, or at least I couldn't um, because no, of no. the origin of my campaign. I think if you're at a particular level, then maybe you can <laughs> get away with it. We're having like a, this like a corporate uh, account that that your staff maintains and everyone can yeah. tell the difference very, very quickly. Yeah, um, I could I, I certainly couldn't get away with that. Um, and for, for folks who feel hurt uh, by what Annie's describing, I can vouch for the fact that I was like, why doesn't Annie follow me on Twitter? <laughs> and now I know. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> totally, totally fine. Because really when I was just reaching out to you for this uh, this podcast, like that, that's when I discovered it because, uh, you know, I, I was like, oh, I'll just reach out to her on Twitter. Um, so, uh, but there there is something to the fact that uh, I think being a public figure in a certain way requires there there to be uh, a degree of permeability. And then that requires you to have a certain mindset about feedback. Uh, and, and I'd say to your point, Annie, it's like, it's pretty easy to blow off uh, comments that you know are, are ridiculous or whatever. Uh, like the comments that make you think are the ones that are thoughtful <laughs> and, and uh, like, and prefaced by something 
um, relatively human or humble being like, look, you know, like you don't need to listen to me, but um, you know, like uh, I saw your last thing and this is what I thought of it. And this is the way like, like, like that kind of thing um, you do take to heart almost instinctively uh, because if someone took the time to craft something thoughtful, then as a human being, you know, you give it some degree of weight and care. Uh, yeah. So I, I'm with you on that. Uh, and you, you end up with like a very quick filtration mechanism where if it's thought less, then you just kind of bypass it. Uh, um, so, th- so that that's at least my reality for what it's worth. Yeah, that's really, it's really interesting. And it's, it's good to know. And it's, it's interesting, because it does, I think you're right, right? Like, in so many ways, I think that that politicians become immune to, um, or unable to hear um, constituent problems in kind of funny ways. Um, I think that they become kind of insensitive to the possibility of change that is out there and also just to the, like the realities of problems on the on the ground. And that's not like it's painting with a very big brush, but I do, I think that like the whole question of how you're filtering information and what you care about. I see this in my own work too, right? Like I do a lot of just like listening to people and discarding story ideas or saving them for later, just like literally trying to figure out like what is happening in people's lives and how can I report on that in a way that's that's true and how do we have like both a narrative of like real humans experiencing life and some kind of evidentiary backing some data to see what's 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 going on out there um which I think is you know sort of like a different version of that same challenge uh, that policymakers face well I love your reporting because it often synthesizes and combines very human um emotional stories that you can see yourself in with tons of data because you, know, you you're very very wonky uh and data driven um before we move on to what's going on out there and how yeah. you see what, what's unfolding um what you just said about politicians i think is a real problem well, I, i've been trying to figure out how to fix this broken system of ours because like you said our government's not meeting the moment and you're you're seeing uh failures right and left and one of the issues, Annie, and this was some research that came out, was that I think being a politician genuinely messes with your mind. Yeah. Uh, and there was that that reporting about how power changes your brain wiring. So you become less <laughs> empathetic and uh-huh. you reciprocate less and you mirror less and you're, you're generally number uh, yes. and don't pick up cues as well. And I can see it like I because I, I, I'm, as most people know, a relatively... Uh, new public figure. And so I've been in the public eye for a number of months, let's say. And I think I'm still pretty much the same guy I was. And like, I haven't had my, my brain damaged. In, in that way. But, uh, but, but I can very clearly see if I like was in this kind of arena uh, for decades, uh, how it would end up changing me in, yeah. in a way that would make me less apt to listen to folks or care. Uh, And uh, I think that this is something that is almost embedded in our system because at this point we have so many leaders who've been in the public eye for 20, 30 years plus. Yeah. I mean... I think that that's that's absolutely astute. And when you look at at the problems, right? Like the 
gerontocracy of American politics. Um, I don't necessarily think that, that, that age and experience are bad things at, at all, and I, I don't in any way mean to be ageist, but I do think it is problematic. You know, it's funny, I, I was back reading um, for a potential story, I was just reading coverage of like the 92, 96, and 2000 elections. Um, and people were just so much younger <laughs> than politicians were just so much younger. And this was, this was true throughout American life. And I, I think you can see it when you look at, at Congress and the parties also. Um, and, uh, you know, um, for a piece that I just recently wrote about the Republican Party, it's kind of about like why the Republican Party has, has moved away from many of its own ideas, has really stopped pushing forward legislatively and how it's become, the word that I settled on was kind of contentless, right? It's, it's sort of a protection racket for rich people. Substance free. <laughs> yeah, substance free. Like, some, some, yeah. Self-perpetuating for the sake of perpetuation. Exactly. They just want to win. And, and one of the things that political scientists brought up is they're like, look, like people's tenures are really long and politicians, you can see it in this current election, tend to be really old. And we know that that really matters a lot in terms of just like introducing new ideas in. And so I guess that this is a roundabout way of saying that we need way more Andrew Yangs running for office. <laughs> there should be more Andrew Yangs. I agree. I'm not sure if my wife would agree. <laughs> She'd be like, what is plenty? Yeah, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to clone you, I think. So <laughs> Oh that that would probably lead to an Asian joke somewhere, sorry. <laughs> I'm, just I'm sorry if there's like there was like an army of me. Um so uh so thank you for that. Uh, I I've said on multiple occasions it should not take someone like me running for president to get a new idea on the national stage. Um so in that regard I agree with you. There should be more people trying to advance new ideas so we're not subject to uh, like a 20 or 30 year old conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, 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 that that's absolutely right. And, you know, I appreciated that, that one thing that I think is hard about liberal politics right now is just that all of the kind of policy idea generation is really happening on the left and I think that there's a lot of desire for new and big policies. And I think it's going to be really hard for those to become a really potent part of the national conversation, despite the fact that there's just lots of great ideas out there. And the left has, you know, as, as the right has gotten sort of smaller and moved really far to the right, the left has gotten bigger and sort of absorbed this kind of uncomfortable center while it's also moved to the left. And I think it's, it's going to be really interesting. One of the things that if Biden wins, which uh, of course, I'm not sure that that'll happen at all. Um, is is going to be interesting is, is just to see, you know, I think um, it's a hard thing about being on the left right now is, is you know that you're going to be facing a lot of, of disappointment <laughs> um, uh, just for structural reasons. So, yes, Let, let's fight to be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, Annie, you're one of my favorite reporters in the world in terms of just seeing what's out there. Uh, and I can sense the pain um, in in your voice when you think about what is going on out there, um, where it's your job to actually talk to people and make sense of the, the data. So as an economics reporter right now, how do you figure out just how bad the damage is? 
It's um, it's pretty hard. This is a really unusual recession. Um, it happened really fast. It was this kind of induced recession for public health reasons. So we had this kind of soft, I, I don't want to call it a lockdown because we never really locked down, but this sort of withdrawal of business activity that was driven not by the federal government, but by state and local governments and and really largely by people themselves being like, I don't want COVID. I don't want to spread COVID. I'm going to stay home. And and you had a pretty impressive. I was I was pleasantly surprised at the CARES Act, how big it was and how aggressive it was. Um, but we proceeded to do nothing on the public health front um, at a federal level, and you know we're nearing 200,000 people dead, and now we've had this really dramatic withdrawal of support. So PPP is over while businesses are still struggling. Um, the $600 boost is gone in UI. So that's taking, I believe it's like $60 billion out of the economy every month. And that's from, tends to be disproportionately lower income families who are quite likely to spend it. And so I feel like we're a little bit in that, um, in that circumstance where like, you know, the coyote runs off of the cliff and just is suspended in air for a minute. Um, that's uh, August. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was August. And I feel like gravity is now going to kick in. Yeah. And we still, you know, we have these eviction moratoria. We've not seen um, a ton of evidence of a de sharp decline in consumer spending, but that's certainly coming. And so it's pretty hard, but you talk to people and people are really frightened and things are really bad and we are seeing exactly what everybody thought, which is mass business failure. And that mass business failure is going to be the thing that will turn this into something like a depression. Cause like when your business shuts down for no good reason, um, your employees get laid off, you go through a bankruptcy process. Um, you know, you have some wealth effect. It, it has that, that, that knock on effect. And so I'm, I'm really worried. This is, this is really bad. And I think it's going to take quite some time to claw our way out of this. Um, and I think other countries have certainly done better on the health front. I think that they've also done better on the econ front. Um, and the fact that we never really got control of the virus is, is, you know, culprit. It is the alpha and omega of why everything is terrible at the moment. Yeah, you referenced the fact that people are going to make the choices they make. Um, and it's one of the things I find so frustrating about some of the discussions that if a governor or the feds uh, make a decision about businesses in a locality or travel restrictions or the, the lack thereof, there are still going to be millions of Americans who just look up and say, you know what, I don't think I am going to take that trip. I don't think I am going to go to that restaurant. I don't think I am necessarily uh, going to uh, hit the bar or the movie theater or whatnot. Uh, and, and so that set of choices will just have these long-lasting ripple effects for as long as the virus uh, is out of control. Uh, and as someone who's run businesses myself, you know, right now your appetite for uh, for risk, expansion, expenses is so negative right now that I can see how that's just going to cascade through the economy when people start thinking, okay, like I've given it a little bit of time and now I'm going to have to actually start making the difficult decisions, the layoffs, the adjustments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's right. Um, you know, if you just take the kind of capital investment portion of the economy, the hit there alone is probably enough 
to reduce output over a course of, of years. Um, how are businesses supposed to, to plan for the future if the virus is still spreading and schools are still, still shut down and everybody's still really afraid of this? And, and you know, now we're coming into flu season and people are going to be indoors. Um, it's, it's a really impossible situation that we've put people in. And, you know, and, and I think that this is um, the, the catastrophe is being born on the back of service workers, low income workers in general. Um, you know, and in terms of the, the really negative stuff on the horizon, we knew that there was going to be huge problems with state and local spending. Lo and behold, like we're starting to see those layoffs and those pay cuts come through. Um, so that's just buying us a longer recession. And it's really frustrating because I think a lot of the issues here are amenable to policy solutions. And we are not both both Congress and the White House are just electing not to not to rely on those solutions. Um, and this is this is going to be this is so bad. And I felt like we had learned some lessons from the Great Recession in terms of just spending your way out of it and just not stopping until you you saw wage growth down in the bottom of the income spectrum and um, uh, and employment growth kind of across across um, educational bands and in different racial groups and all over the country and you know it's just we 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 didn't really learn those lessons um, and and so this is this is a real. It's a real mess. Um, and again, I think that, that the data is not caught up to people's lived experience just in terms of how bad this is right now. When you talk about the data, um, what do you look at? I mean, for me, I'll, I'll tell you, I look at the weekly uh, unemployment filings Yep. Um, and, and try and keep up with what's going on in terms of the, the labor market damage. Um, one of the stats that I cited in my DNC speech, which I think really is very powerful and telling, is that approximately 42% of the jobs that are being lost right now will not return. Yes. Uh, and I, one reason why I hit that point so hard is that there are a lot of people, I think, that are waiting for things to quote unquote, go back to normal. Yeah. And, and we need to get used to the fact that what we're seeing right now is actually closer to the whatever new normal is going to be than what existed pre-COVID. Um, so what uh, what numbers are you looking at and what are they telling you about what's going on? Yeah. So um, one of the numbers that I think has been unusually important during this recession and this crisis has been um, looking at spending on debit cards that are linked to the UI system. Right, so um, uh, spending is a little bit sticky. Um, it takes a while for people to kind of change their spending habits in relation to a shock. And so, one thing that 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 has been interesting is that it looks like sort of overall credit card spending and consumer spending held up for a little while after the withdrawal of those six hundred dollar. Um, uh, additional weekly benefits on UI, which have now expired, and states are sort of scrambling to set up the um, additional funds that, that the Trump administration um, pushed out through FEMA. And, um, but if you look at the actual spending um, that is on debit cards that people receive UI payments on, it just fell off a cliff. Of course it did, right? Like the money went away and people stopped spending it. And so one thing that's been interesting during this, this crisis has been that um, I feel like it's been more important 
important to look at some of these private sources of high frequency data to see how things are changing in real time. And the hard thing about that is that, you know, it's not adjusted and it can be a little bit murky. It's not as solid as those government numbers, but things have been changing so fast in just the past six months that it's been, I feel like, necessary to take a look at these at these somewhat quirkier, high frequency sources of data to get a sense of what's happening. Because, um, you know, I know at this point it might not feel this way, sort of six months or seven months into the pandemic, but um, everything is going really quickly um, for a recession, right? Like it's, it's all happening really fast and much more violently than it did before. Um, there was like this really big stimulus, but then it ended too quickly. And, you know, so, so it's been hard to kind of like wait for a lot of the really big government numbers come out quarterly. Right. And they get readjusted. Oh, no. and so, yeah, yeah, you can't have that. It's all really backward uh, facing. <laughs> So the, the when you talk about this high frequency private data, um, I'm pulling something up on my phone. Uh, I have yeah. a friend who um, runs a clearinghouse for gig workers, over two million gig workers, and, and yeah. he's plugged into their bank accounts essentially, so he can see what's yeah. going on. Uh -huh. on a weekly basis. Is this the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. So um, everything that um, everything that, 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 that is giving us that kind of like look at what households sort of broken down um, are, um, are spending. Um, yeah, so debit card data, credit card data, um, uh, sites that do sort of job postings have been really important. So yeah, all of, all of that has been quite useful. Yeah, job postings make sense. Um, so this person's clearinghouse um, showed that uh, in August, there was a 17% drop in total income across all members. Uh, and that was likely because these benefits evaporated. Um, he also said that the number of gigs that you could sign up for um, has gone down by about 60% uh, relative to the pre-pandemic uh, number of opportunities. So those are pretty terrible numbers. Certainly the 60% fewer opportunities is awful. Um, and the 17% drop in total income is pretty disastrous too, um, given that, that that really just got started in August um, when the benefits elapsed. Yeah, so that's, that's really, really terrible happening here is that we're starting to see um, uh, uh, layoffs that are to um, any kind of like, you know, initial shutdown, right? The layoffs that are happening now feel like they're more permanent. Um, and, and there's still a ton of them, right? Like uh, the weekly layoff numbers, the new new unemployment claims number has remained really, really high um, for months and months and months now. And I think that we're starting to see um, layoffs become more permanent, which was something that we, we had expected um, to happen for quite some time. So when you're looking at the, I mean, I, I'm terrified by these numbers too, Annie. I, I feel like you and I have a lot of similar um, perspectives and sense of things. Uh, and it's horrifying what's going on in the labor market. Uh, it's horrifying what's going on in these households. Uh, you can sense this uh, desperation and suffering that's just going to increase uh, really with no end in sight until we get another stimulus package. And I was talking to Ro Khanna, uh, the member of Congress from California, about why the heck we can't see a stimulus bill. And he was talking about the dynamics of Congress, really, that, you know, you need, um, I mean, in this case, the House passed their HEROES Act. I believe the 
top line for that was three trillion or so, and then they were just unable to hammer out a deal with Mitch McConnell, and then they all came home um, in August. Uh, and I sent something out saying, "Look, every day we don't get a deal is disastrous." Uh, yes. And it sounds like you have a similar perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I feel like um, one thing that is happening is that the the kind of critical number for Congress, um, for the federal government, is not that sort of top line, how much money are you spending, right? It's It's this gap. It's the gap between what the economy could be doing um, absent the pandemic and the shutdowns um, and, and what it is doing. And you need the federal government to fill that hole, however big the hole is, right? Like this is the whole notion of Keynesian stimulus. And so, you know. So how, so how big is the hole, Annie? Like how, big <laughs> do you, how, much do you think, how much do you think they should be uh, filling? Yeah, I don't think that three trillion, which is um, the number that they they settled on in the Heroes Act, is is that far off. Even though they've already spent the two point two trillion in the CARES Act, it doesn't matter. They need to spend whatever it is um, will will bring that 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 overall number up, and they can they can do it in the most effective way possible. So so um, we have really good measurements of this thing called the fiscal multiplier, which is for every dollar of deficit spending, how much more does that dollar get spent in the economy or how big is the impact of it? And I so love you, it. You do something like tax cuts, it's a pretty small impact. You do something like sending people with no cash cash and it's a really big impact. So unemployment insurance is one of the most effective ways to do this. Um, just sending people cash is a great way to do it. Things like payroll tax holidays are a really bad and inefficient way to do it. So you need the number to be really big and you want it to be weighted to things that are heavily effective at fighting a recession. And instead, Congress is just like sitting on their hands and not doing anything. And, and we are going to see evictions. We are going to see job losses. We are going to see business closures. We are already seeing them. This is happening and, and we know why it's happening and we are seeing it happen in real time. And the time that they needed to start passing the stimulus was like months ago, not, not now. Months ago. And we still don't have the bill. And, and it's creating tremendous uncertainty, as you point out, because what, what, what business owner is going to be investing right now? Who is sure of the future if the future is involving this much unnecessary death and, and economic destruction? Yeah, and who's hiring uh, in this environment too? To your earlier point, another thing that has really good bang for the buck is uh, aid to states and cities. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. So they take that money and they use it uh, <laughs> to like pay elementary school teachers um, and for public health. And yes, it's it's really, really important. And so the issue here is that uh, states and cities generally need to keep their budgets balanced and they have usually quite small sort of rainy day funds. And so uh, once you see property taxes and um, real estate, uh, sorry, and sales taxes, once that revenue is declining as it is right now, um, um, states and cities are put in the position of having to lay people off. And so laying off firefighters, laying off teachers, laying off sanitation workers, laying off public health workers, um, you don't want them to do that during a recession. And uh, we have no automatic way for the federal government, which is the one that can deficit spend as much as it wants to fill the gap. This was something that people talked a lot about after the Great Recession. And so instead, we're in this horrible place of requiring congressional action to fix a problem that everybody has known about for however long. <laughs> 
Yeah, the, 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 I can sense your frustration. I'm frustrated. So many people listening to this, too, have uh, become just fed up with our uh, leaders' inability to act and do the basics. Uh, and there's a pandemic, which we are handling terribly. Uh, I think that that's pretty clear to, to most everyone. Um, and then there's the compounded economic damage, which we are also handling terribly. And... Uh, like these two things together, they they make people so um, distraught. I mean, I, I'm distraught and angry o- over this state of affairs. I feel like uh, I feel like your uh, post at the Atlantic is is one of the, like the more influential ones, and in that I feel like most of the uh, people in the know read the Atlantic. I don't know if that's true. Or if that's just my perception. <laughs> Um, and, and your side too. I mean, I read your work and I, I can feel like there is this beating heart of an agenda behind, um, the urgency you're trying to, to heighten over the level of economic distress. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is, this is a crisis. Um, and I have some, I don't know why, um, the sense that it is a crisis and, we should be acting with absolute urgency is not necessarily something that that all people in the political system share. I certainly think that many do and are screaming their heads off and banging their heads against the wall um, to try to get things done. Um, but I do think that it's an argument for um, having more automatic stabilizers and taking uh, responsibility out of the hands of Congress, which is a very, very broken institution. I also, I mean, I have a theory that I, it's just a theory um, and I have no evidence for this, but this recession, the pain of this recession has been so concentrated among lower income workers who tend to be more disenfranchised in our political process. Um, We've already seen wealth recover to roughly where it was um, before the recession and the pandemic. And just a lot of the economic pain hasn't been focused up at the top. And I do worry that that's maybe part of what's going on here is, you know, the unemployment rate for people who were making a lot of money before highly educated is actually not that high. It's gone up, but 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 um, it's been much, 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 much higher for kind of service workers, um, workers who might happen to have less education um, or who might have been uh, sort of marginalized in the economy for a bunch of other reasons to begin with. Um, and I feel like, you know, um, for high income folks, this has now become about the issue of what do you do with your kids, which is a really, really stressful and important issue, but um, the disproportionate burden of, of the health crisis and the economic crisis is, is really being um, borne by the people with the least capacity to manage it. And so I, I don't know, I, I get the feeling that that might be part of sort of the perceptual shift here. Um, but again, I, I don't necessarily know that. Oh, I'm sure you're right, Annie, uh, because if you look at and I'm very self-conscious about this. So during this pandemic, I've been doing as much work as I can do to try and help. Uh, We've distributed eight million dollars to folks in increments of between 250 and three thousand dollars. You know, I've been campaigning for various candidates, but I'm very self-conscious of the fact that I'm on Zoom a lot and I interact with other people who are on Zoom. And all of the airline attendants and bartenders and security guards and personal trainers and hairstylists and uh, uh, folks that relied upon their physical proximity to do their job and have a job um, 
most of them are suffering in some way right now and i i'm unlikely to see them on zoom or i'm unlikely yes. to see them uh you know on on my um my events or whatnot and i'm very very conscious of that and unfortunately i think that's informing our politics uh, i think it's informing in part the journalistic coverage as well because if you're a journalist uh you know there are limitations as to um how you can identify and speak to to various people and actually lay out the the data in a way that's intelligible to readers or viewers yeah i think that that's right um and i do i think um you know the child and child care and educational crisis um the fact that we have failed so many people and we've handicapped our economy in in such a profound way and it's you know it feels like a moral failing too um it's one of the things that makes me this is i feel like this entire podcast is like things that make annie angry um but that's one of them too it's really hard to talk to um folks in other countries where the schools are open and life has really returned to normal whereas here um you know people are are still really struggling and not going out and wearing masks and it's still really frightening and you know um uh that that part of it it's not to diminish any of it um but yeah that's a it's a different set of issues and and you know and and i guess one of the frustrating things is how many families are, are facing both right both a job loss and the loss of child care or you know you have to leave your kids at home because you have to go to your work that you don't want to but because it's unsafe but like you have no choice and so um but yeah it's it's the impacts have been felt very differentially So Ezra had me intrigued when he said that you may be working on something or working on something big. Uh, and so he nudged me to ask you. So I'm now going to ask you, are, are, are you worried? So the thing that came to mind for me is a new book, but it might, but it sounded like it might be something else. Yeah. I mean, so I'm working on a bigger project that I'm really excited about, um, which is looking at the ways in which um our safety, and this actually grows out of the last book, um, our safety net um, uh, was sort of, it was constructed to be difficult to use. And lo and behold, when you hit a real crisis in which people need to use um, benefits um, or safety net programs, right? So UI, something like that, or SNAP, um, that, that, that then it, you know, the systems can't contain these people. Um, and just in general, I think that, that the government uh, is dysfunctional for a lot of reasons, but one of the ways in which the government is dysfunctional is that um, it doesn't have a very good customer service orientation. Uh, things like doing your taxes are really confusing. So miserable, unnecessarily. Why? Yeah, so, why? Yeah, why, right? Um, we have this enormously overcomplicated health system in which you have to fight with an insurer and you have to figure out, you know, does your doctor take this, Awful. that, or the other? It's horrible and the government is crucial in that. And then you you look at programs like SNAP or UI and they're just a disaster. And for this piece, I was talking to some folks who um, work on these kinds of systems in uh, like Finland. And they were just horrified that you might wait three months for UI benefits here. It's like literally unheard of there. And and so um, that's, that's one thing that I've really been thinking about a lot this 
this year um, because I think it's in in a lot of ways intentional, right? We don't want the government to work very well, um, or at least a lot of people. I want it. I want it to work well, Annie. <laughs> <I don't know> <laughs> <about> <laughs> you. <laughs> you do. Historically, many politicians have thought that these should be punitive programs, that they shouldn't be ones that are easy to access or to use, and 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 it's um you know a pretty paternalistic like well you know if you're unemployed and you need help from the state then you should have to go to this office and figure it out we don't want to make it to it's a famous paul ryan line right like we don't want the safety net to be a hammock um but but i think that that, that you can kind of back out and just see how little administrative capacity the federal government has at this point um and the states that are administering federal programs and it's pretty horrifying and it's a really hard problem to measure but it's like very obvious to everybody who ever interacts with any of these systems <laughs> Oh, we all heard the horror stories of people getting busy signals for days and weeks on end because they're trying to call yes. their uh, state unemployment office. And the obvious question in my mind was, why the heck do you have to call someone to get your benefits? Like, what is going on here? Yes. You know, like there should be myriad ways for you to access those benefits that do not involve your uh getting frustrated dialing in and every time you call and get that busy signal it's an erosion in public trust yes you know like we're, we're, we're conditioned uh to think that things are supposed to be this lousy and it's yeah. awful uh so you're writing a book about why things were designed to be lousy is that the is, no, no, <laughs> just, um, I'm, I'm working on a story on it now right um and and it yeah it's about um it's about um, how it came to be that the the administration that that public administration became the burden of individuals instead of the government. Because I think that that's functionally what happened, um, and I think that there's absolutely no reason for it. It was a colleague was asking me um, why is it that unemployment isn't automatic? So as soon as you lose your job in a layoff, you don't sure. just get unemployment. And I was like, well, because we've designed it not to be automatic. <laughs> like there's absolutely no reason that it couldn't be automatic. Um, and the same thing for a lot of these these programs, right? Like, why isn't it that if you are a parent with low income who has a new kid that you don't just automatically get a payment from the government uh, to support that kid's nutrition and to make sure that you have childcare? Other countries do that. We don't. Um, and so I think that, that this really grew out of... Um, my thinking about this really grew out of the last book where, where one of the cool things about UBI is it just vaults over a lot of these problems. Um, but absent UBI, there are a lot of fixes that other governments have taken, um, uh, lots of updates that other governments have made. Um, and I think that there's like an obvious, the role of the Republicans in all of this is a little bit more obvious. But one thing that, that I think is especially fascinating is that it's not like blue states are a lot better on this front than red states, right? Um, they have a lot of issues with administrative complexity. Um, California has had an absolute disaster with its UI system and people waiting months and months and months for benefits. And um, the problem is, is really systemic and multi-causal and it touches all sorts of um, programs. You know, um, when you talk to people who are applying for asylum or people who are formerly incarcerated and, you know, um, uh, are still involved in the judicial system. It's all the same thing, right? It's just endless red tape in a really profound way. This, this to me, is the issue, Annie, that you, me, Ezra, anyone else can just freaking beat the drum on this stuff because uh, everyone can see that our government is highly inefficient at delivering various things. Uh, to people, and we are conditioned to think that's the way it, it 
supposed to be, even though it's not supposed to be that way. Uh, and it hamstrings uh, the ability for progressives to effectively uh, both win policy changes and argue for a bigger role of government in improving our lives, in my opinion, because even reasonable folks uh, can look up and say, wait a minute, like, it, you know, it's like you couldn't get me unemployment benefits for weeks or I still haven't gotten them. I mean, I hear these horror stories uh, on Twitter all the time where people are, like still haven't gotten them and it's uh, September or whatnot. Um, so we need to actually start paying attention to the mechanics, like the nitty gritty. It's one reason why you and I both like universal basic income, because I thought, well, if we champion a way to get value into people's hands, then, and it's uniform and it's universal, then we're going to figure out a way to actually get people that money. And of course, if everyone was entitled to that money, you know, you know, that they'd be like, they'd be like, where's my dividend? Uh, and it ends up, um, uh, building our capacity to actually add value in people's lives because you would have to figure out the plumbing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that there's there's a bunch of win-win-wins here, right? If things are simple and automatic, uh, you don't need a bunch of civil servants to administer it, right? Um, and you can free the government up to do other things. Um, and we actually, we there's a ton of political science research. There's a, a really great scholar at Cornell named Jamila Missioner, and a lot of her work is focusing on Medicaid and people's interaction with the political system after, um, after receiving Medicaid or working with the health system in general. And, and, you know, one of the things that comes out of that is that in many ways, interacting with our government reduces our interest in and confidence in government, as you put it. And, and there's even some evidence that it sort of dissuades people from voting and disconnects them from the political wow. process. No way. They're like, I want nothing to do with this. That's exactly. Awful. And I think that there is this really interesting kind of like thought loop that you get in, in which like, public services are terrible and it erodes your confidence in government and then it becomes self-justifying, right? Like why would we want to put any more administration into this if the government can't get anything right? And I think that you can look at sort of positive cases of where the government does get stuff right. Like actually most people who have Medicaid are pretty happy with it. I'm old enough to remember when the argument about Medicaid was that it wasn't insurance worth having, but it is insurance worth having and, and people actually really like it. People are very happy with Medicare. People are very happy with Social Security. People are very happy with public libraries, for instance. Um, so like, shouldn't we be setting that standard? Shouldn't everything be as efficient and transparent and non-punitive, non-paternalistic as Social Security, right? Like this is the argument for, for UBI. But you can, you can make other changes um, to sort of nudge you in the direction. So one change that I think we don't talk about very often, but I think would be really good, is that I think TANF, which is our cash welfare program, should be eliminated and replaced with a child grant right? You should not have to apply. You should not have to, um, you know, meet these really onerous, terrible work requirements. You shouldn't have to interface with, with a welfare office that in many cases um, might, might have some preconceived notions about you. If you, if you are a person with, with a kid, we should just give you the help, right? Um, and, sure. and we should take away all of the red tape and the judgment and the everything that goes with it. Um, 
And so I think that that's probably the clearest case. Um, TANF is a really unworkable, punitive, terrible program, um, depending on which state you're, you're in. Um, and, and it's also not big enough, <laughs> right? Like it doesn't um, actually help enough people get out of poverty because um, it's been capped at this amount since 1996. Uh, the same, the same um, amount uh, gets appropriated for it every year. Um, and so, but yeah, I think as a general point, like making government work for people is is not necessarily a focus of our political system, but it really should be. It really needs to be. And we need a catchy name for this. Uh, I've got a couple of, <laughs> of trial balloons. One could be the smart state, the efficient state, yes. efficient government. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Annie, when I had conversations with folks on the trail about these ideas, I'll tell you like that. Republicans are all over it, uh, where they're just like, yes, wasting government is terrible. Like, you need to clean it up. Democrats are also all for it, but they consistently veer straight to the military budget. They, they yeah. say, yeah, like, we spend way too – and which we do. I mean, you know, we, we're spending $700 billion, uh, a year. Um, but to me, this is uh, the crux uh, of – an argument or a movement that could unify people because if totally. you just went around and said look i'm just going to make things work better i'm going to make it so that your interaction with government resembles your interaction with your bank yeah. <laughs> where where the site is clean and slick and you have an app and you expect things to work right 98 percent of the time uh, and if you and they don't work right then you can get a remedied pretty uh, straightforwardly most of the time um like that has has to be the movement, um, and, and that could help bridge this gap between. It's not like you know, big, small. It's just better or smarter or more. Totally, efficient. yeah. I think that that's really important. That that when we think about big government, intrusive government, bloated government. Um, you can actually think about kind of uh, two different axes here, right? So one is like, how, how big is the benefit? How generous is the benefit? But another is like, how efficient is the government in getting it to you? Um, yes. How much of a royal pain in the ass is it for you to to try to get something that the that you've been told that you um, qualify for that is supposed to be there for you? And it's supposed so, to be yours. It, yeah, it's not exactly. supposed to be yours after you walk through a circle of fire. Exactly. <laughs> We've set up this circle of fire for you. If you could get it, that it's yours. It's like some kind of strange contest. Totally. And what's weird is that we have these, these unbelievably meager benefits in many cases that you, you, you need to jump through a thousand hoops, right? It's like you've had some trauma or some difficult thing in your life, and we ask you to take the SAT over and over again. It's complete madness. And so and if you look at countries that do really well on this, so the countries that, that have really excellent public administration, um, uh, it tends to be the, the Nordic countries. But what What's funny and, and like researching this is that in, in fact, actually a lot of really low income countries do great too, because they don't have these legacy systems. They just, their, their impetus is to get benefits to people as fast as they can and with the, as much agility as they can. And so it's, it's like, we actually have something to learn from civil servants in countries like Bangladesh and Rwanda. <laughs> um, we are, we are uniquely terrible on this front where, where we really, um, have this kind of like built up uh, administrative state where we just ask a lot of people and, and it's really confusing and difficult. 
I love it, Annie. I can't wait to see this piece. And unfortunately, if you tell Americans that we could learn something from Bangladesh, they, they, they just nod and say, yeah, yeah, probably. probably. <laughs> 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 um, uh, I will say when I was on the trail, uh, I would argue for single parent health care or uh, universal health care. And then someone would come to me and say, hey, Andrew, I understand the need. Um, but I remember when the government rolled out Medicare.gov and it was a fiasco. It's like, you know, taking over health care seems even more complex than that. Like, why, why do you have confidence? And, you know, that that's frankly like a reasonable question to pose yeah. <laughs> if, if you get it if you get it from someone and i i still you know believe that we need to to uh, make big moves in the healthcare um provision but the but skepticism is warranted uh you know if you're a reasonable observer and, and citizen who interacts with the government when people just seem to be arguing for more and more and more um without actually the discipline or sense of reality to try and address the plumbing like it, it makes a, it just makes it less credible yeah i think that that's right and i think it, it actually goes to something that we were kind of saying before um you know the the thing about a single payer system is that you are eliminating an entire layer of middlemen yeah tens hundreds of thousands of insurance workers right now that are trying to sort through various uh um claims and treatments exactly and so it it, it does um increase complexity in some ways. But if the government is, is, is taking on that complexity and you're taking complexity away from consumers, um, I think that that could be a good thing. There's the, 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 the endless question of kind of how you get there. Um, but uh, there are other high income countries that have transitioned to more rational systems of care um, in the last 20 or 30 years. Um, so I don't think that the fact that you, you're going to have a lot of kludge and a lot of pain um, doesn't, doesn't give you, um, you know, a reason not to do it. And it, it does feel like, um, you know, if you have the North Star of kind of universal coverage, but you just want to rationalize the system, uh, there are just a lot of ways to do that. Um, and I think that the conversation has become really advanced. But I do, it, it's one of the constant complaints that I hear about the ACA. And I know that it's it's, it's uh, uh, something that 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 people have said is you know like a lot of compromises were were made in order to get that bill passed is that it's just a really kludgy awkward way of doing things right like we expanded Medicaid but obviously many states continue to opt out of the Medicaid expansion we have this sort of like extremely complicated system of exchanges it's very unclear what you get and then we have this employer um, based system which is, you know, remains the primary system of insurance for prime age adults and, and for many children. And it is just hugely, hugely complicated and irrational. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, it's an absolute beast. <laughs> it's, it's really hard. And, and I do, you know, the thing about single payer systems um, is that they have an elegance to them, right? It's just the NHS is pretty straightforward um, uh, uh, compared to what we have, which you look at the org chart and it's just massive, right? Massive complicated um, system with with many bureaucratic layers. Yeah, this is maybe the beginning of a movement, Annie, around smart and efficient government. And uh, like that, this to me has to be the challenge because we, we're all seeing our government fail us in various ways. Uh, we need to do more and we need to do it better, smarter and more efficiently. Uh, the, the big challenge to me is trying to restore 
government capacity, but also public trust. Because right now, last I checked, I think Congress's approval rating was something like 10% or whatever. I mean, like you literally have like 90% disapproval. I mean, like if you can imagine a world where we tried to reverse that and, and got approval up to, I mean, you probably can't get 90, but even if you go from uh, 10 to 50, that would be an enormous accomplishment. And you have to imagine what we'd have to do to restore public trust. Um, to me, something like universal basic income would be a game changer because uh, as someone who campaigned on it, people uh, would find it to be too good to be true. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. they were just, uh-huh. just just like millions of Americans when they got that $1,200 stimulus, they were like, wow, this is great. I, I quite liked that. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's right. And I think that looking at the things that um, government does do well, um, Right, like again, people really like Social Security. That's a program that that works really efficiently. Um, people really like the post office, um, which I think is why you've seen so many people come to save the defense. post office. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I almost hate to admit this, but I had a really great experience at the DMV this week. I they went, made progress on some of the DMVs. Yeah, yeah, I was really expecting the worst, and I waited in line for you know it was probably like half an hour, and they did temperature checks, and everybody had a mask, and then I. I was in and out of there in five minutes. And so I think recognizing that the government can be, and in many cases in other countries is an excellent provider of services, um, and then just demanding more of it, right? Why should you have to wait on the phone for, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks and make hundreds of phone calls to get the UI benefits um, that in some cases you paid for with your FICO, with your payroll taxes? Um, why why is it that so many of these things are so slow and so kludgy? Um, uh, I really, I like this. The the, you know, the efficient, the agile, uh, the functional government uh, is is great. And there's so many civil servants who who really do heroic work and so many programs that really work so well. Now, we we need to help. I mean, I may be in position to help myself, um, which I would do because, you know, like I, I see the needs very clearly. Uh, so as one of the, the champ and so, you know, I endorse the idea of your turning this article into a full-fledged book. <laughs> I think it'd be great to end up being a resource for us all. We could give it out to folks in government and hopefully help us improve things. Um, so uh, as one of the foremost early uh, champions of a version of universal basic income, and you talked about how you see uh, you and me as kind of tackling different parts of the project <laughs> First, what did you mean by that? And we'll end this on asking how you see the future of universal basic income here in the United States. Yeah. So um, I, I feel like you have a lot more knowledge of like what's going on with with uh, tech than I do. And I feel like it seems to me that you came to UBI um through tech, but then also just became like a generator of a bunch of big ideas about government. I've always really liked your emphasis on on uh, like mental health and counseling as being something that we should you know create more public provision of, for instance. Um, but I came to UBI like less from less from a space of of worrying about technology and and its effect on the economy, and 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 much more from. Um, doing a lot of reporting on on uh, safety net programs in the United States, which is really where a lot of my work has been. So that was that was all that I meant from that. But UBI, it it has this really fascinating way of you know there are people who come from sort of like a philosophical and a rights perspective. There are people who come from like a 
like, um, you know, an anti-inherited wealth perspective, which I've always found fascinating, <laughs> right? Like, shouldn't every child start off life with sort of like the same, the same benefits? Um, and I, 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 I think there's a lot of people who come from sort of like a green perspective. There's really interesting thoughts about UBI and racial justice. Um, and it's one of the things that I think is kind of coolest about UBI is that it, it, it just has a lot of really interesting economic and philosophical strands. And so in terms of thinking about UBI going forward, um, uh, we had this really amazing thing happen in the spring where one of the main pillars of recessionary response that we had from the government was cash. Like we just tossed cash out the window at people and, and it worked great. Um, and I think that I learned a few things from that. So the first is that it would be really good if the government set up a system to deposit money into bank accounts or debit cards yes. for people. Get a pipe into my bank account. Exactly. <laughs> Do it. And I, I, I know that I'm sure that you know this. It was like, gosh, it was like 10 or 12 years ago that Britain decided to do this. Other countries have like figured out a way to be like, okay, if we just want to get cash out to everybody and we want it to happen fast, how does that happen? There's a million ways of doing it. People talk about Fed accounts or postal banking um, or, you know, just creating that relationship somehow. But um, it would be really great if, if we could do that. So that's, that's one takeaway and it should be quick, right? Um, yes. Like we're we're gonna Venmo, we're gonna cash app you the money. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, seriously. Cash app for all. Cash app for everybody. It's it's we we are there and the system should be really, really fast and really agile and we should be able to do it. And the second is that um if if giving people cash to get them out of a moment of crisis and to help heal. Uh, the economy during a moment of crisis makes sense for a recession. Doesn't it make sense for other forms of crises? Um, child poverty is a crisis. Like, can we not see that as a crisis and use cash to get our way out of it? Because there are a lot of problems that cash does not fix, but like people yep. having too little money is not one of them. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> poverty is the absence of cash. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so um, that's, that's, that's what I took away from that. And I do think that going forward, um, simple, simple cash, right? Cash app for everybody should be a main pillar of recessionary response. And it should hopefully be automatic so that it's not Congress that has to approve it every single time. <laughs> I love it. The stabilizer. If the economy teeters, yes. then we all get ourselves um, a dose, a recharge in the cash app that's connected to our bank account. I love it. Andy, it's a beautiful vision. Let's make that happen. We're yeah, going to make it happen. It. I, I really hope so. I think, I think we need it. Um, uh, it's, it's for all of these problems. I can think of a thousand <laughs> that, that, that would be good if we solved them in this way. Well, Annie, you are a force for good uh, and a voice of reason. I love your work. If anyone wants to see what Annie is seeing, go to the Atlantic, read her work. Uh, she posts a new article uh, every week or two. Um, and I'm a subscriber to The Atlantic. I find their journalism to be really spot on, perceptive, smart, balanced, rational. Uh, and all those words could, could apply to you, Annie. Uh, thank you so much. And all the best to, to you and the family uh, out west. I hope you guys uh, enjoy the end of the summer. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate um, uh, having the chance to, to come on and uh, the chance to chat with you again. And Hopefully, hopefully the next time we talk, things will be uh, 
in a little bit less of a crisis, but uh, really, really happy to be here. Yeah, Annie, and keep me posted on this piece and definitely this yeah, book. We'll I'll have send you back it. on. We'll have you back on when it's book time. That's for sure. It's going to be like a blueprint for how we can uh, fix the plumbing. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs>